to the third episode of Cracking Charity Chat, Learning from the Leaders, with me, Beth Crackles. Today I'm joined by Kevin Wobey, founder of Good Innovation. We're recording at the Angel Building in Islington and there is a bit of background noise. I met Kevin about seven years ago when I was working at Friends of the Earth. Um, he's actually just reminded me of the first time we met. Uh, it involved some, a rather embarrassing incident involving me and some tomato ketchup. But yeah, I used to meet up with Kevin every few months for coffee when I was living in London. To be able to tap into his knowledge, really, he's, um, he's been really kind with his time with me and he's incredibly knowledgeable about the subject area and in fact all areas of fundraising as it transpires. So there's an absolute ton of learning in here and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Kevin, thank you for joining me today no for Cracking Charity Chat. It's great to speak with you again. So today we're going to talk about innovation and income diversification. Yes. I wanted to start with a bit of an overview about yourself and your background and a bit about good innovation, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Um, so my background, twen- over 20 years probably in fundraising. Started the below the line agency called Burnett Associates, run by oh, yeah, a, a yeah, guy yeah. called Ken Burnett. Yeah, you might, you might have heard of. Yeah, so I, I run some really serious uh, below the line acquisition programs for the likes of RNLI. And I moved client side to what was then the Imperial Cancer Research Fund and later became Cancer Research UK. And I was there for 12 years. I had several different jobs. So I started in the uh, leading the legacy development program, came head of legacies through merger, moved on to set up a new department in the retail chain, looking at new retail propositions. But I got a job as head of development that was looking at a small team of people who were doing sort of brand and innovation and, and some insight. So I split that team out, created the brand team, and I created lastly the innovation program at Cancer Research UK. Led that for six years and then set up Good Innovation. The way we describe what we do is we help organisations that do good to grow by solving problems that matter. So we work mostly with charities, but not exclusively. So we work with local authorities, we work with corporates, because all, all of those sectors have the potential to do good. And what we do broadly is we tackle problems that our clients have, but we do it through human-centred design. So really putting the supporter or the beneficiary at the heart of what we develop by understanding them and their needs and their wants and their beliefs and what's going on in their world. Have you seen a change in the types of organisations that you work with, perhaps being more charity focused when you set up to looking more towards the private sector perhaps, as there's been a blurring of boundaries between organisations over the years? Yeah, so we look, we mostly still work with charities, but... Um, we have a real ambition. We really believe in collaboration as a means for driving innovation and solving big problems. And we've got a real focus moving forwards on how we can bring together different organisations with different skills and experiences to solve some of the society's biggest problems. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and I think within that, what we're really interested in is how the government sector, how the charity sector, how the commercial sector can come together to solve society's problems. Because there's no monopoly on doing good, um, certainly not anymore. And we want to help facilitate that. 
And I think companies are increasingly need to be doing good, as yes. you put it, not just because of the problems that we face, but really? companies just get named and shamed, don't they? Yes. Especially on social media. So it's, it's in their best business interests as well to do good, isn't it? It certainly is. And we talk about looking for corporates with a conscience. So those guys who, rec- you know, absolutely, they, they know they need to do it. But those, there are some organisations who really believe in it as well. And I suppose we're really interested in working with those guys. Your website in particular talks a lot about being uh, customer centric and using insight. Can you tell us a bit about how you go about gathering insight? Yeah, sure. Particularly in the fundraising sector, when when people talk about insight, that usually defaults to data. So the data that particularly individual giving programmes have on the amount of money that people have given, when they gave it, how often they repeat those sorts of data sets. That's useful. It shows historical activity, but his, historical activity is not necessarily a portent of future, uh, what people would do in the future. So what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to champion what we call small data, the small data, the why. Why are people doing certain things? And it's not just about giving. So if you truly put the supporter at the forefront and the centre of developing new propositions, you have to understand their lives in, in, in the round. It's not just about giving. People don't get up in the morning generally, you know, thinking, I must give this morning. They don't do that. But they might wake up worrying about the emotional resilience of their kids. So when they, when they send their kids out into the world, when the first day at school, the parents will worry about, for instance, parents will worry about that, that sense yeah, of um, separation. So how could charities help parents solve that problem and run, raise money at the same time? Which is essentially what we did with um, Scope's Mindful Monsters. Really interesting thing about putting supporters at the heart of it and truly understanding them and their world is that it leads to really, really different fundraising and income generation opportunities and possibilities. The monster, I don't know how much you know yeah, about mindful. It would be mindful. helpful to give a bit of a snapshot. So, Mindful Monsters is. is essentially a product we developed with Scope. Um, it's a regular giving product, but it's a subscription service. Scope provide parents every month a number of cards, that each of which has um, mindfulness exercises that they can do with their children. They're designed ultimately to create quality time between parents and their kids, which is what we heard mums wanted as well, particularly. Um, but most importantly, it's designed to help parents build the emotional resilience of their children which is what they wanted. So it just comes from a really different direction. Um, and so how do you go about getting that insight? Is it through focus groups or...? No, we don't use focus do groups. Um, we use paired depths a lot, what we call paired depths. So we, we interview people from our target market one-on-one with their best friends. Because actually oh, okay. people are much less like conversation because yeah, they, yeah. they'll work on so each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they'll, they'll call each other out if they're... Something's not quite true. We just look for other ways of doing it. We use a lot of um, online communities now uh, to gather insight. We ask people to keep diaries about the highs and lows of their lives. So just trying to get insight from different directions. But it's the small data that we're interested in. And I think the sector is, is, has been historically so obsessed with big data. Yeah, and actually yeah. in this sector, big data is very shallow. 
But the small data is really interesting because that'll throw up all, all sorts of problems that the sector might solve and generate money off the back of. And what's interesting about what you've just said is that for perhaps a smaller organisation wanting to get really rich small data as you call it they can do that themselves and their service absolutely. staff can bring that back to them as well absolutely and so you know, it doesn't require 20 grand on research does it absolutely not it's not something that you need to hire an agency for necessarily it's you, everyone can do this stuff and actually with fundraisers who are talking to supporters every day bought care teams got loads of knowledge so this this stuff can come from different directions. It doesn't need to be a professional agency that delivers this stuff. Mm. It'd be interesting for organisations to give more thought to how they capture that yeah. for themselves. Yeah. There's something about being quite targeted on the insight that you, you want to gather, but also sharing that insight. So insight might sit, for instance, in support care that might be hugely relevant to proposition development in individual giving or community fundraising or, or elsewhere. So how do you, how do you share that? So charities historically have been a bit behind with digital and I think there are various reports that say that digital skills are where charities feel that they are lacking. Is that something that you found as a challenge? I recognise and we recognise that digital is really important and that it's obviously transforming many sectors and it may well do the charity sector too. But going back to what I said previously about putting the supporter at the heart of what you're trying to achieve, If you do that, then digital is not always the solution, right? So we talk about being channel agnostic. Digital in many instances is a channel. Yeah, it's just another channel. It's just another channel to communicate, right? But if the proposition or the campaign, you know, the thought that you're trying to get out there doesn't meet a need or tap into a belief that they have, then it doesn't really matter that you're using or not using digital. We're very sceptical when clients approach us and say that they want a digital thing and we try to persuade them that actually you'll only know whether you need a digital thing once you truly understand what it is that supporters need from 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 you yeah so you take them back to that audience back to that audience audience. and then work it out so we're working with the tuc the tuc have a problem because if they can't persuade young people in the private sector to collectively bargain then the union movement is unlikely to exist in 20 years. At the same time, those young people's experience of work is worse than their parents, but they don't know it. And it just so happens, having done all their insight work and segmented that audience, because that's a big audience, that the the solution is digital. It's it's turning into an app, but that's not where we started. We did a piece of work with an Alzheimer's charity looking at how they could equip and enable care homes to deal with the sex and intimacy needs of people with dementia. Um, The solution that we came up with there, having put care workers and people with dementia and their families at the centre of things, was not digital at all. It It was actually more of a game that enable care workers to understand how they could deal with with these so if we go back from mindful monsters for instance sorry i think this is really important yeah no go for it <laughs> if we go back to mindful monsters for instance mindful monsters is, a, is they are physical cards that are delivered through the post but the promotion of that is largely di- digital and actually the, the, a lot of the promotion of that if i under, if i understand it correctly has been through mums telling each other about it mm-hmm. so online online yeah. through social yeah. media so it's not digital, but digital is a great channel for communicating it. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, thank you. That's really interesting. And also, amazing breadth of work. Really interesting problems. You know, we talk about we talk about wanting to solve big problems. Mm. That feels like a big problem. I wanted to ask you about the product development framework. When I was working in the innovation team at RNIB, we had a sort of standard product development framework, um, which you can Google and they all sort of look rather similar, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had all these different tools to help think people think about new ideas and all the rest of it. And then filter things and get them through a business case and then seek approval and then test, learn, evaluate repeat basically what does your product development framework look like or does it vary i think it's really important to put and it's a tidious word in the context of innovation i hesitate to use it but process around innovating because actually otherwise it can become incredibly random Um, so we do have a framework we call it life uh, learn investigate find and experiment Mm -hmm. and we we do use it so, for instance, we used it on TUC, we used it on Alzheimer's, we used it with Scope, but we use it really flexibly, and also we, we adapt it. So the, the, the life model that we introduced five years ago and how we apply that looks very different now to then. In what sense and why is that? For instance, how we gather insight has changed. So we, we do use a lot more online communities. How we validate that insight has changed. So we can we can get that much more online now than we used to be able to. You know, we're always pushing the boundaries with the find stage. The F in the life is the stage for us where we go out and find ideas that meet the needs of supporters or beneficiaries that we've identified. But that's really changing. So we're doing much more open innovation now, looking at outside the sector, beyond the organisation, looking at bringing in just really different and diverse thinking. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you actually is about what you've brought in from the private sector in terms of ways of working as opposed to ideas just nicked and replaced and skills that you've brought in from the private sector. I mean I'd I'd start by saying that the whole human-centred design approach that we take we brought in from other sectors so the the design methodology that we use came from the commercial sector but it works really well in the charity sector with a good understanding of fundraising, I'd say, mm-hmm. particularly. And it's how you apply it. The minimum viable product prototyping that we do, and we're doing a lot more of that because it's really important. Lean methodology taken from the mm-hmm. digital space. We have a view on that as well and how you apply it and when you apply it. And I think in the sector at the moment, there's a lot of talk of agility, but actually getting agile is fine once you, you really understand the problem you're trying to solve and the mm. question that you need to ask. So we, had, uh, we run these events for leaders of innovation, breakfast events, and a couple of weeks ago we had the lady who basically heads up innovation at Tesco, and uh, Sanjana was talking about she'll, she's a huge fan of sprinting. She can sprint in a week, she can sprint in over a month, but she'll, she'll, she'll use that methodology but she'll spend six weeks understanding what the problem is before they start sprint which in our methodology is the l of life it's Mm -hmm. the what we call learn so learn learn and understand what it is you're trying the problem you're trying to solve and don't start trying to solve it until you really really have pinned it down so yeah we brought loads of methodology and thinking in from other sectors because actually some really interesting stuff happening out there yeah yeah and we we spend quite a bit of time staying attuned to that 
I think it can also be quite insular as well, the charity sector, can't it? We, we look to other organisations who are similar and are competitors and things like that. And, yeah. for example, Cancer Research did Race for Life, and so everybody was like, oh, we need a mass participation event. Macmillan did coffee morning, now everybody's trying to basically do a coffee morning. Yeah. Or tea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not, not that different, is it? But, well, um, and I think that comes from... I think it comes from... Being, being a generally risk-averse sector. Mm. so, And that's understandable as well in many ways, isn't it? Absolutely, because we're spending supporters' money, right? So you, you want to you make sure that you are doing that really responsibly. And one way you can do that is by replicating what seems to work at other charities. Mm. Um, but it's also, I think, led us to quite a difficult place for fundraising. Because actually there's not that much that is really pushing the boundaries of fundraising. Yeah, yeah. And once, once a channel works, do you remember, I remember sitting on a tube once in London and all the advertising panels around me were for text three quid. Yeah, text yeah, three yeah, quid yeah I remember it. I've been in exactly the same situation. Yeah, I, yeah. I was astounded. I was like, It was the uh, two-step model as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Or it was like sign up. Yeah. to get something free and yeah. then um, and then there was a telephone yeah. call which converted people as well that two yeah. stage model was really popular yeah and I, I'm not I'm not criticising I'm not criticising the model I think my my point you know you can you can argue to in pro, uh, pros and cons of that model but mm. my point was that charities had seen that working they'd all jumped in mm. and I think that's a consequence of being risk averse mm. actually um and actually, but once again, if you were to put the supporter at the heart of something and then layer on your brand to what they need, it would just lead to completely different uh, propositions in the sector. You know, who would have thought that, that, that Scope could make a success of mindfulness for kids? Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, it's called design thinking, which is about putting the supporter at the heart of things and designing out from there. Which, which is, is what we always talk about doing as well, isn't it? Listening to supporters. Yeah. Yeah, but perhaps not doing it quite as well as we should be. So I think all the tough times that we've had in fundraising ever since probably 2015, really, I think people are genuinely starting to think about how they put supporters at the heart of things. Um, and I think they're, they're, they're curious about how they do that well. Mm. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that's really genuine now. Whether the, the sector is skilled up to do it well is another question um, yes. but it is about gathering yeah. that small data and not just relying on the big data the shallow big data incremental versus transformational innovation you did something amazing with british heart foundation so this is an example of incremental innovation so you've basically applied some insight and the the quote from the lady at british heart says there's 70 percent increase in sign up the following year that yeah. is incredible on an existing product. Yes. So what's your starting point for improving things that are already out there in the world? The, the starting point is trying to understand what the problem is that the client wants mm -hmm. or perceives to be the problem. Actually, sometimes the problem that the client perceives to be the problem isn't actually the problem. So that thing about really taking time to understand the problem is is where we start and then going out and, and understanding the supporter and their world and how this product that exists does or doesn't meet their needs and requirements 
And it's often really small tweaks you can make that actually will make a big difference. I think Macmillan actually did this most powerfully with uh, Coffee Morning. So just by really understanding who their supporter actually was, that really transformed the performance of Coffee Morning. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was a great example of it. Should we talk a bit about the barriers and enablers to innovating? So I guess some people will feel that it's about budget. That's it. That's an easy one that's usually at the top of the list, isn't it? We don't have any budget to do anything. Um, How do you get it past the Board of Trustees or how do you get investment for anything new? I know there's been a lot of chat for quite a long time about failing and failing fast as well. But the reality of that, when when you have to be accountable, like you say, you're spending supporters' money to develop something new, how do you go about some of those challenges when you're working with organisations? I think this stuff comes down to culture. So I think there was a report recently by a Harvard Business Review that talks about the, bar- the biggest barriers to su- succeed in innovation. And they went out and surveyed a number of different organisations on their experience of um, innovating. And the biggest barrier was identified as culture. And I keep coming back to innovation being a leadership challenge. And le- leaders need to set the agenda around it. So all of these problems that we talk about, like lack of money or uh, boards that are risk averse, or it's, it's all about leaders and their attitude. And I, I think about cultures as hard and soft. So the, the soft stuff for me is about, you know, um, vision is an innovation tool. So if, if, you, if you've not set, if the leadership haven't set a really inspiring vision, you're less likely to be un- innovate well because people aren't, won't be as motivated. So I think vision is really important. I think really setting a clear strategic intent and direction is really important because actually in- innovation is just random if you don't have a, a direction in which you're travelling. That's really interesting. So reflecting on my time at RNIB when we were setting up the innovation framework and the innovation team, <laughs> I distinctly remember somebody saying I was the girl that fannies around with uh, flip charts. It's that, that was some nice feedback. Um, <laughs> but people tend to think that it's about generating lots of really fun ideas and it's a really fun thing to do. But actually, what you've, al- what you've already said is that it's helpful to have a process around it. And now you're talking about the strategic framework of the organisation, really. Yeah. Yeah. This all needs to be in place for it to work effectively. Yeah. So I think that has implications for having an innovation team and that team over there does, does the new stuff. Yeah. Well, this is interesting as well. Going back to this, the soft aspects of creating the right cultural environment, I think you know, we talked about vision, we talked about mission, we talked about strategy and strategic intent. Those are the start points. Because when you've got a motivated team who understands what direction they're going in, then you empower them to actually try some new stuff, then that, lead, that will lead to innovation. Mm. When I'm out there talking to charities and fundraising directors and CEOs about what the biggest barrier is, they talk about time. Yeah. But time is a leadership yeah. challenge, right? So make the time. <laughs> you know, give people time in their roles to do new stuff and do that genuinely. Uh, give them the budget to do that. I think leadership is the challenge both of today and tomorrow. In what so sense? Managing and, and, and leading a business well or charity well, I think, is both about delivering on the business as usual, the today, doing that well, being operationally astute, 
and also about investing in tomorrow and making sure oh, that yeah. okay. in that you've got the products and the propositions and the and the uh, services that actually will deliver your mission tomorrow. Elsewhere, I've heard it called how do you become an ambidextrous organisation? So how do you do both of those things well? A lot of people who lead the sector who are very operationally astute, so they're, they're really good at running the today, but they have less experience and feel less confident about delivering tomorrow. But I think that needs to change because I think change is happening more and more quickly. I mean, you, you talked earlier about digital. Digital is driving change. It hasn't necessarily really impacted this sector yet, but it will. So how do we flip it or at least balance it out? So that leadership is both about delivering today well, but also really understanding how to do tomorrow. Where we've got to is that leadership is absolutely pivotal to being able to innovate effectively. So we've talked about some of the leadership challenges, as you say, so like time and money and this. These are things that leadership has a choice in what, to, what to do and what to yeah. drop to free up space. Yeah. And similarly, as we talked about a few minutes ago, in terms of being able to get your board on board with innovating and being able to fail and creativity these are all things that the leadership can enable absolutely and i think there's something about leaders need to be exemplars of that so they need to demonstrate that behavior when i was at CRUK running the innovation program we did quite a bit around that with uh, richard taylor and the director's team so i remember we we asked them if they wouldn't mind at a fundraising conference each of the director's team to get up and just talk about a failure that they'd had and what they'd learnt, learnt from it and they just talked about some pretty big stuff that had gone wrong really publicly and what they'd learnt from it and how that was a, a good thing to do and that is a very obvious way of being an exemplar of the sort of behaviour that you want to encourage and this <laughs> you've got me going now this point about creativity I think it's changing but I think there's a conflation uh, historically in the sector of creativity and innovation those two words yeah so innovation is about much, much more than having a few ideas and running a brainstorm. And actually, if you haven't done that work to understand what problem you're trying to solve, and if you haven't done that work to understand the needs, wants, beliefs of the people that you're trying to attract, then the creativity is just random, frankly, uh, and it's a waste of everyone's time. And innovation doesn't start with the idea. So no idea is born perfect, right? You might have an idea that when it actually gets into market, it needs to change quite drastically. I just think we need to be cleverer about how we view innovation and what innovation involves. Yeah. And it goes back to that leadership thing about managing tomorrow well, because actually managing that well requires time and possibly money. Yeah, and the confidence to make a call on some big things. When there was the economic crash in 2008, some charities sort of tightened their belts and cut stuff and others invested in the longer term but I think it was probably quite a difficult decision to make for some of those people to to keep on investing when other people were tightening up and probably faced quite a lot of scrutiny from their board of trustees as well. Yeah it's a brave organisation that at that point was going to invest in, in, in tomorrow rather than buckling down on today. Cool okay I want to finish off with the question about is there a book or an ethos or a person that has inspired your work? I had to give this some thought. Right. <laughs> I would too, to be honest. I'm not sure what I'd say. Well, it's, it's interesting because I'm inspired by loads of stuff. My mind went to people, and then I was trying to categorise them into types of people because it's not just one person. <laughs> this is a longer answer than you. <laughs> it's like a 10-minute answer. 
God, so I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued so by the working of your so mind. So where I got to was there's certain people who inspire me. One are visionaries who can make shit happen. Because mm-hmm. it's all very well having a vision, right? But if, if, if you can't make it happen, then it's, it's just, just a vision. Annoying. It's yeah. just so. Like, I know he's not flavour of the month, but Elon Musk is, oh, a, right. is a huge visionary, particularly because I think he's trying to impact the environment with, you know, introducing electric cars. And that. he's a, he's not an easy character, right? That, that much is obvious. Yeah. But he makes shit happen. I know he's struggling to get his uh, mass volume car out. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I mean, and his just, boats in Thailand. Yeah, I just, what was that all about? Yeah. I was really sad actually when all that blew up because I just thought, yeah, Elon, get some rest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, get off Twitter and get some rest. Yeah, yeah. make shit happen is one of our values. It can, uh, is it? Good innovation. Because <laughs> there are so many ideas, but actually, you know, not that much delivery. The other thing was that I'm inspired by people who are different and who embrace their difference. People whose gender is not always linear. I've got so much admiration for the fact that. They embrace it increasingly. I just think yeah, when I was yeah. a kid, that would have been yeah. It that would have felt been, impossible. It would, have, particularly in East Yorkshire, in rural yeah. East Yorkshire, oh, you that have would to be. Get you from East Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah. I was the only gay in the village, right? Yeah. Um, so that for me, I always felt different, and that word "different" has always been really important to me. And mm. I think it's driven a lot of the way I think. So who's an example of that? Well, I watched a BBC three documentary on this guy i can't remember his surname but jamie the teenage drag queen oh yes and there's a show about it doing yeah the theater, so there's a sh- there? now yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. show in the west end either, but yeah i keep coming back to, I'm, I'm telling everybody about it because he basically decided he was going to go to his school prom in drag and i was just like good for you and it comes back to innovation actually because I, I think if we enable people to embrace their difference more i think we'd innovation would just flourish. I think that's a beautiful way to end. Thanks so much for, um, for joining me. No, thanks I for asking me. speaking to you. Good to see you. Okay. Yeah, you too. <laughs> the learning that I took from my chat with Kevin is twofold really, but two very big areas. One is around leadership in innovation and the other is around audience insight. So firstly, leadership in innovation. The challenges that we were talking about, the sort of barriers to innovation, tend to be around time and money and to be able to fail and to be able to fail fast, which we talk about a lot in the sector. But all these challenges, as Kevin quite rightly states, are leadership challenges. It's up to the leadership to be able to provide that bit of budget, to be able to take people off projects that perhaps aren't as valuable in the long term, arguably, and put their time into innovation and creativity is at its best when there's a strategic focus so it's really important that leaders of organizations or leaders of fundraising teams are able to provide that strategic focus that vision for the organization to clearly understand the challenge that they are trying to address and to provide a structure for that creativity and I think there's a lot to be said about how people interpret what innovation is in my experience Quite a few people think it's about doing really new cool stuff and you can generate loads of ideas and, you know, it's really good fun. But the reality, in my experience, is that it needs a lot of structure around it and, yes, it is good fun and creative, but you need a process to go through. And in the end, what you need to get to is a really robust, costed business plan. 
The second learning that I took from Kevin's chat was around audience insight. This was actually quite a big learning for me in terms of the kind of budget that I've seen go on audience insight before around market research and around focus groups that, as Kevin said, can be quite skewed anyway because people don't tell the truth in front of other people. So what Kevin was saying was that the big data that we're really good at, at taking and manipulating in the sector is actually quite shallow and what we should be looking at is small data. So this is stuff that smaller organisations with very low or no budget can actually implement quite easily. So things like interviewing people with their best friend and shadowing people is just a fantastic idea. And this is information that you can get from your service colleagues or you can send your fundraisers out to do it. It doesn't need to be expensive. So I think that's a really great learning. And obviously it's, it's helped good innovation and the organisations they work with come up with fantastic products such as Scope's Mindful Monsters. Thanks for joining me today and I hope you can tune in next time. Bye.